Chapter Two of the Loudwater Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Loudwater Mystery by Edgar Jepson. Chapter Two. Lord Loudwater came to lunch in a better temper than that in which he had left the breakfast table. He had ridden eight miles round and about his estate, and the ride had soothed the seat of the evil humors, his liver. Lady Loudwater had been careful to shut Melchizedek in her boudoir. James Hutchins had no desire in the world to see his master's florid face or square back, and had instructed Wilkins and Holloway, the first and second footmen, to wait at table. Lord Loudwater, therefore, could, without any ruffling of his sensibilities, give all his thought to his food, and he did. The cooking at the castle was always excellent. If it was not, he sent for the chef and spoke to him about it. There was little conversation at lunch. Lady Loudwater never spoke to her husband first, save on rare occasions, about a matter of importance. It was not that she perceived any glamour of royalty about him. She did not wish to hear his voice. Besides, she had never found a conversational opening so harmless that he could not contrive, were it his whim, to be offensive about it. Besides, she had at the moment nothing to say to him. In truth, owing to the fact that she took so many practically silent meals with him, she was becoming rather a gourmet. The food, naturally the most important fact, had become really the most important fact at the meals they took together. She had come to realize this. It was the only advantage she had ever derived from her intercourse with her husband. At this lunch, however, she did not pay as much attention to the food as usual, not indeed as much as it deserved. Her mind would stray from it to Colonel Gray. She wondered what he would tell her about herself that afternoon. He was always discovering possibilities in her which she had never discovered for herself. She had only perceived their existence when he pointed them out to her. Then they became obvious. Also, he was always discovering fresh facts, attractive facts about her, about her eyes and lips and hair and figure. He imparted each discovery to her as he made it, without delay and with the genuine enthusiasm of a discoverer. Of course, he should not have done this. It was indeed wrong. But he had assured her that he could not help it, that he was always blurting things out. Since it was a habit of long standing, now probably ingrained, it was useless to reproach him with any great severity for his frankness. She did not do so. For his part, the Lord Loudwater had but little to say to his wife. She was fond of Melchizedek and indifferent to horses. For the greater part of the meal, he was hardly aware that she was at the other end of the table, immersed in his food and its deglutition. He was hardly sensible to the outside world at all. Once disturbed by Holloway's removing his empty plate, he told her that he had seen a dog fox on Windy Ridge. Again, when Holloway handed the cheese straws to him, he told her that Mary Bell's black colt had a cold. Her two replies, Oh, did you? and, as he, appeared to fall on deaf ears. He did not continue either conversation. Then Lord Loudwater broke into an eloquent monologue. Wilkins had poured out a glass of port 
for both of them to drink with their cheese straws. Lord Loudwater finished his cheese straw, took a long sip from his glass, rolled it lovingly over his tongue, gulped it down with a hideous grimace, banged his fist on the table, and roared in a terrible, anguished voice, "'It's corked! It's corked! It's that scoundrel Hutchins! This is his way of taking it out on me for sacking him. He's done it on purpose, the scoundrel. Now I'll jail him. Hanged if I don't.' "'I'll get another bottle, my lord,' said Wilkins, catching up the decanter and hurrying towards the door. "'Get it and be quick about it, and tell that scoundrel I'll jail him,' cried Lord Loudwater. Wilkins rushed from the room, bearing in his hand the decanter of offending port. Holloway followed him to help. Lady Loudwater sipped a little port from her glass. She was rather inclined to take no one's word for anything, which she could herself verify. Then she took another sip. Then she said, "'Are you sure this wine's corked?' Corked wine at the end of a really good meal is a bitter blow to any man, an exceedingly bitter blow to a man of Lord Loudwater's sensitiveness in such matters. "'Am I sure? Hey, am I sure? Yes, I am sure, you little fool,' he bellowed. "'What do you know about wine? Talk about things you understand.' Lady Loudwater's face was twisted by a faint spasm of hate which left it flushed. She would never grow used to being bellowed at for a fool. Once more her husband's refusal to let her take meals apart from him seemed monstrous. Hardly ever did she rise from one at which she had not been abused and insulted. She realized, indeed, that she had been foolish to ask the question. But why should she sit tongue-tied before the brute? She took another sip and said quietly, "'It isn't corked.' Then she turned cold with fright. Lord Loudwater could not believe his ears. It could not be that his wife had contradicted him flatly. It could not be. He was still incredulous, breathing heavily, when the door opened and James Hutchins appeared on the threshold. In his right hand he held the decanter of offending port. In his left a sound cork. He said firmly, "'This wine isn't corked, my lord. Its flavor is perfect. Besides, a cork like this couldn't cork it.'" A less sensitive man than Lord Loudwater might have risen to the double emergency. Lord Loudwater could not. He sat perfectly still, but his eyes rolled so horribly that Lady Loudwater started from her chair, uttered a faint scream, and fairly ran through the long window into the garden. James Hutchins advanced to the table, thumped the decanter down on it. No way to treat an old vintage port. At Lord Loudwater's right hand, walked out of the room, and shut the door firmly behind him. In the great hall he smiled a triumphant, malevolent smile. Then he called Wilkins and Holloway, who stood together in the middle of it, cowardly dogs and shirkers, and strode past them to the door to the servants' quarters. A few moments later, Lord Loudwater rose to his feet and staggered dizzily along to the other end of the table. He picked up his wife's half-emptied glass and sipped the port. It was not corked. It was incredible. He would never forgive her. He rang the bell. Both Wilkins and Holloway answered. He bade them tell Hutchins to pack his belongings and go at once. If he were not out of the castle by four o'clock, they were to kick him out. 
Then he went, still scowling, to the stables. Mr. Manley had already finished his lunch. Halfway through his after-lunch pipe, he rose, took his hat and stick, and set out to pay a visit to Mrs. Truslove. As he came out of the park gates, he came upon the Reverend George Stebbing, the locum tenens in charge of the parish, for the vicar was away on a holiday, enjoying a respite from his perpetual struggle with the patron of the living, Lord Loudwater. They fell into step, and for a while discussed the local weather and local affairs. Then Mr. Manley, who had been gifted by heaven with a lively imagination, wholly untrammeled by any straining passion for exactitude, entertained Mr. Stebbing with a vivid account of his experiences as leader of the first great push. Mr. Manley was one of the many rather stout, soft men who in different parts of Great Britain will, to their dying days, entertain acquaintances with vivid accounts of their experiences as leaders of the great pushes. Like that of most of them, his war experience, before his weak heart had procured him his discharge from the army, had consisted wholly of office work in England. His account of his strenuous fighting lacked nothing of the fire or picturesqueness on that account. He was too modest to say, in so many words, that but for his martial qualities there would have been no great push at all, and that any success it had had was due to those martial qualities. But that was the impression he left on Mr. Stebbing's simple and rather plastic mind. When, therefore, they parted at the crossroads, Mr. Manley went on his way, in a pleasant content at having once more made himself valued, and Mr. Stebbings went on his way, feeling thankful that he had been brought into friendly contact with a really able hero. Both of them were happier for their chance meeting. Mr. Manley found Helena Truslove in her drawing-room, and when the door closed behind the maid, who had ushered him into it, he embraced her with affectionate warmth. Then he held her out at arm's length, and for the several hundredth time admired her handsome, clear-skinned, high-colored gypsy face, her black, rather wild eyes, and the black hair wreathed round her head in so heavy a mass. "'It has been an awful long time between kisses,' he said. She sighed a sigh of content and laughed softly. Then she said, "'I sometimes think that you must have had a great deal of practice.' No, said Mr. Manley firmly. I have never had the occasion to be in love before. He put her back into the chair from which he had lifted her, sat down facing her, and gazed at her with adoring eyes. He was truly very much in love with her. They were excellent compliments, the one of the other. If Mr. Manley had the brains for two, indeed he had the brains for half a dozen, she had the character for two. Her chin was very unlike the chin of an eagle. She was not, indeed, lacking in brains. Her brow forbade the supposition. But hers was rather the practical intelligence, his the creative. That she had the force of character on occasion, the fierceness which he lacked, was no small source of her attraction for him. "'And how was the hog this morning?' she said, ready to be soothing. The hog was her pet name for Lord Loudwater." Beastly. He's an utterly loathsome fellow, said Mr. Manley with conviction. Oh, no, not utterly, at any rate, not if you're independent of him, she protested. Does he ever come into contact with anyone who is not dependent on him? 
I believe he shuns them like the pest. Not in the close contact, she said, at any rate nowadays. But I've known him to do good-natured things. And then he's very fond of his horses. That makes the way he treats every human being who is any way dependent on him all the more disgusting, said Mr. Manley firmly. Oh, I don't know. It's something to be fond of animals, she said tolerantly. This morning he had a devil of a row with Hutchins, the butler, you know, and discharged him. That was a silly thing to do. Hutchins is not at all a good person to have a row with, she said quickly. I should say that he was a far more dangerous brute than Loudwater and much more intelligent. Still, I don't know what he could do. What was the row about? Some woman sent Loudwater an anonymous letter accusing Hutchins of having received commissions from the wine merchants. That would be Elizabeth Twitcher's mother. Elizabeth and Hutchins were engaged, and about ten days ago he jilted her, said Mrs. Truslove. I suppose that when he was in love with her he bragged about these commissions to her, and she told her mother. Her mother has certainly taken it out on him for jilting her daughter, but what an unsavory place the castle is, said Mr. Manley. With such a master, what can you expect, said Mrs. Truslove. Did the hog say anything more about having my allowance? Mr. Manley frowned. A few days before, he had been greatly surprised to learn from Lord Loudwater that the bulk of Helena Truslove's income was an allowance from him. The matter had greatly exercised his mind. Why should his employer allow her six hundred a year? It was a matter which should be cleared up. He said slowly, Yes, he did. He asked what you said when I told you that he was going to have it, and he did not seem to like the idea of you seeing him about it. He'll like my seeing him about it even less than the idea of it, said Mrs. Truslove firmly, and there was a sudden gleam in her wild black eyes. Mr. Manley looked at her, frowning faintly. Then he said in a rather hesitating manner, I've never asked you about it. But why does the hog make you this allowance? That is my dark past, she said in a teasing tone, smiling at him. I suppose that, as we're going to be married so soon, I ought to make a clean breast of it, if you really want to know. Just as you like, said Mr. Manley, his face clearing a little at her careless tone. Well, the hog treated me badly, not really badly, because I didn't care enough about him to make it possible for him to treat me really badly, but just as badly as he could. For when he and I first met, I was on the way to get engaged to a man named Hardwick, a rich city man, rather a bore, but a man who would make an excellent husband. Loudwater knew that Hardwick was ready and eager to marry me, and I suppose that that helped to make him keen on me. At any rate, he made love to me, not nearly so badly as you think, and persuaded me to promise to marry him. "'I can't think how you could have done it,' cried Mr. Manley. "'How was I to know what a hog he was at home? At Trueville, he was quite nice, as I tell you. Besides, there was the title. I thought I should like to be Lady Loudwater. You know, I do have strong impulses, and I act on them.' "'Well, after all, you didn't marry him,' said Mr. Manley, in a tone of relief. What did happen? We were engaged for about two months. Then, about a month before the date fixed for our marriage, he met Olivia Quainton, fell in love with her, and broke off our engagement a week before our wedding day. 
"'Well, of all the caddish tricks,' cried Mr. Manley. "'You can imagine how furious I was, and I wasn't going to stand it, not from Loudwater at any rate. I had learnt a good deal more about him in the eleven weeks we were engaged, and naturally I wasn't pleased with what I had learnt. I set out to make myself very disagreeable. I saw him and did make myself very disagreeable. I told him a good many unpleasant things about himself, which made him much more furious than I was myself. "'I'm glad some of it got through his thick skin,' said Mr. Manley. "'A good deal of it did. Then I made it clear to him that he had robbed me of John Hardwick and an excellent settlement in life, and told him that I was going to bring an action for breach of promise against him. That certainly got through his thick skin, for it's very painful to him to spend money on anyone but himself. But he made terms at once, gave me this house furnished, and promised to allow me six hundred a year for life. You don't think I was wrong to take it? She added anxiously. Certainly not, said Mr. Manley, quickly and firmly. Her face cleared, and she said, So many people would say that it was not nice, my taking money for an injury like that. Rubbish! It wasn't as if you'd been in love with him, said Mr. Manley, with the firmest conviction. That's the exact point. You do see things, she said, smiling at him gratefully. If I had been, it would have been quite different. And how else were you to score off him except by hitting him in the pocket? That and his stomach are his only vulnerable points, said Mr. Manley viciously. He was ignorant of Melchizedek's discovery of another. They are, and he certainly had robbed me of an income. It was only fair that he should make up for it, she said rather plaintively. Absolutely fair. Well, those were the terms. This house is mine, all right. It was properly made over to me. But stupidly, I did not have a proper deed drawn up about the money. I had his promise. One supposes that one can take the word of an English peer. But I think that it's really all right. I have his letters about it. There's no saying. You'd better see a lawyer about it and find out. But this isn't a very dark past, he said and rose and came to her and kissed her. He was indeed relieved and reassured. In these circumstances, the six hundred a year was not an allowance at all. It was merely the payment of a debt, a just debt. But it wouldn't be so nice for us if the hog does manage to cut the six hundred down to three hundred. My husband only left me a hundred a year, she said, frowning. To be with you will be perfection, whatever our income is, said Mr. Manley, with ringing conviction, and he kissed her again. She smiled happily and said, He shan't cut it down. I'll see that he doesn't. When I've had a talk with him, he'll be glad enough to leave it as it is. It's very likely that he's only trying it on. It's the kind of thing he would do. But you'll find it difficult to get that talk. He's bent on shirking it, said Mr. Manley. I'll see that he doesn't get a chance of shirking it, she said, and her eyes gleamed again. "'I believe you're the only person in the world he's afraid of,' he said, in a tone of admiration. "'I shouldn't wonder,' she said. "'At any rate, I seem to be the only person in the world to whom he's always been civil. At least I've never heard of anyone else.' "'I'm afraid he won't be civil when you get that talk with him, if you ever do get it,' said Mr. Manley, frowning rather anxiously. "'That'll be all the worse for him,' she said dauntlessly. "'But after all,' If I did fail to make him leave my income at six hundred, we should still have this house and four hundred a year. 
we would still be quite comfortable. Besides, you could keep on as a secretary, and that would be another two hundred a year. I can't do that. It's out of the question, cried Mr. Manley. I'm getting so to loathe that brute that I shall soon be quite unable to stand him. As it is, I sometimes have a violent desire to wring his neck. Now that I know that he played this measly trick on you, it will be more violent than ever. Besides, we must have a flattened town. It's really necessary to my work. I can do my actual writing down here fairly well. But what I really need is to get in touch with the right people, with the people who are really stimulating. Besides, I'm gregarious. I like mixing with people. Yes, you're right. We must have a flattened town. Therefore, I must make the hog keep to his bargain. And I will, she said firmly. I believe you may, he said, gazing at her determined face with admiring eyes. There was a pause, then she said carelessly, When are we going to tell people that we're engaged? Not yet a while, said Mr. Manley quickly. At least, I don't want the people about here to know about it. And if you come to think of it, things being as they are, Loudwater would probably make himself more infernally disagreeable to me than he does at present. He'd not only take it out on me to annoy you, but it's just as likely as not that he would consider my getting engaged to you as poaching on his preserve, infernal cheek. He's the most hopelessly vain and unreasonable sweep in the British Isles. I shouldn't be a bit surprised if he did. He couldn't possibly help being a dog in the manger, she said thoughtfully. And there's another thing. It has just occurred to me that if he tries to half my income for nothing at all, he might try to stop it altogether if I got married. No, I must get that matter settled for good and all. I'll have a talk with him at once. If you can get it, said Mr. Manley doubtfully. I can get it, she said confidently. You must remember that, having lived here for nearly two years, I know all about his habits. I shall take him by surprise. But we've talked enough about these dull things. Let's talk about something interesting. How's the play going? They talked about the play he was writing, and they talked about one another. They had their afternoon tea soon at four. For Mr. Manley had to return to the castle to deal with any letters that the five o'clock post might bring. At twenty minutes to five he left Mrs. Trustlove and walked back to the castle. He was truly in love with Helena. She was intelligent and appreciative. She was of his own class, with his own practical outlook on life. Born of having belonged to a middle-class family of moderate means like himself. She was the daughter of a country architect. He could nowhere have found a more suitable wife. He was relieved about the matter of the reason why she received an allowance from Lord Loudwater, but he was not relieved about the matter of its being halved. Seven hundred a year had been an excellent income for the wife of a struggling playwright to enjoy. It had promised him the full social life in which his genius would most rapidly develop. He had regarded that income with great pleasure. Ever since Lord Loudwater had bidden him inform Helena of his intention of having her allowance, he had been bitterly angered by his barefaced attempt to rob her and consequently her future husband. In light of her story, the attempt had grown yet more disgraceful, and he resented it yet more bitterly. The further danger that Lord Loudwater might attempt to stop her income altogether if she married, though he perceived that it was real, even imminent danger, did not greatly trouble him. 
He was full of resentment, not fear. He felt that he loathed his employer more than ever and with more reason. Holloway brought the post-bag to the library and waited while Mr. Manley sorted the letters that he might take those addressed to Lady Loudwater to her rooms and those addressed to the servants to the housekeeper's room. As Mr. Manley inverted the bag and poured its contents onto the table, the footman said, "'Utchins is gone, sir.' "'We must bear up,' said Mr. Manley, in a tone wholly void of any sympathy with Hutchins in his misfortune. "'He was that furious. "'The things he said he'd do to his lordship,' said Holloway, in a deeply impressed tone. "'Threatened men live long,' said Mr. Manley, carelessly. End of Chapter 2 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas